The Data Skeptic Podcast is a weekly show featuring conversations about skepticism, critical thinking, and data science. Welcome to another episode of the Data Skeptic Podcast. I'm pleased to be joined today by my guest, Carl Mamer. How are you doing, Carl? I'm, I'm good, Kyle. How are you doing? Very well. Many of you will hopefully know him from, if you didn't know him before this, checking out when I appeared as a guest on one of his many podcasts, The Conspiracy Skeptic, where we talked about the Bible code. But uh, you're a rather prolific podcaster. Besides that, I learned from Conspiracy Skeptic a couple mentions about soul survivors of your time spent living and teaching in Korea, which I've been right, going yeah. through the back catalog of. And somehow I never knew about until recently, but have been enjoying Ask a Canadian. So I hope anyone interested will also check that out as well. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. I think I mean listeners of uh, Conspiracy Skeptic because they always call them the Korean questions, are you know sort of aware that I spent time in Korea. But uh, yeah, I, I don't talk too much about Ask a Canadian on Conspiracy Skeptic. Not that I'm embarrassed by it, but uh, it, yeah, this it's uh, the premise is I'm well, I'm the Canadian. And then sort of a panel of sort of four Americans, honest to God Americans, uh, <laughs> some from even the South, which in Canada is actually anything sort of south of Ohio. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, but these are actually real, real Southerners. And, and they sort of apply me with questions about Canada and sort of the, what's the Canadian view on this international crisis. And it's basically a comedy show. Yeah. And we've got another sort of funny, uh, I don't know what you call it, if it's just a, well, obviously it's just a coincidence, but... A bit of interesting synchronicity that if you go back and listen to when I had Louis Zaki on to talk about the game science dice, he mentioned a certain young woman writing a biography about him. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's a bit of a long story, but I mean, I mean I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a Dungeons & Dragons nerd from way back. I'm, I'm 48 years old, so I started getting into D&D about 1980, I believe. This is, they were just starting to release the advanced D&D manuals, first edition, so like Monster Manual and dungeon master guide and stuff like that you know i was kind of a big fan of how do you pronounce his name i was pronounced zachi but i don't think that i was even correct i think he said zaki zaki okay right yeah I, i'm not sure if i encountered him at a couple conventions but you know i was sort of aware of his game company and you know b back then sort of a lot of his games were just kind of like you know to a 13 year old like sort of space opera type games yeah. and superhero games and it was, it was just all Star Trek and that sort of stuff. When you look back, it was sort of, you know, it was all sort of typeset on basically typewriters and hand-drawn art. And it was, just, it, was, it was just gloriously amateurish, but so much fun. So rolling forward, before Wikipedia, there, there was sort of an uh, online encyclopedia called Everything 2. And Everything 2 kind of encouraged a bit of a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy kind of, you know, where you could play fast and loose with a lot of the facts and stuff like that. Anyway, so I was a big, I was big into everything too, and uh, but like in a lot of like social situations, these kind of online things, people, I don't know, little cliques and cults form and stuff like that, and and uh, I, I guess you know people sort of, there, there was sort of an anti-Carl faction because I yeah I just wanted to go on and write funny, you know, nodes and stuff like that. But anyways, to make a long story short, I, I sort of noticed that well, like that women on the system were kind of left out. They were sort of not kind of like, you know, picked on and, you know, their, uh, their write-ups sort of, you know, deleted or, you know, voted down and stuff like that. So I thought, I'm just going to delete my account and just create a female account and just go on as a woman user and then just be left alone. So, yeah, no drama. 
Yeah, so so I don't think anyone ever really sort of, you know, sort of figured out why does a 22-year-old woman have this in-depth <laughs> knowledge of like late 70s role-playing games, but I was left alone. I could just and and eventually I wrote up a history of Luzaki. Around that time I was sort of like, you know, your research, you, you know he was a retired he was retired from the Air Force, I believe, as a, as a sergeant, but different cons, you know, he would be referred to as captain or he referred to as major and he was referring to as colonel. So I, to me, I just thought he was doing this kind of for fun, you know, like every year he would, you know, uh, now, now I'm a colonel. Like it just, see, it, it didn't make any sense that, that the, these titles kept changing other than it was just kind of a bit of his own, you know, his own fun. Like a lot of people refer to him as Uncle Lou. So as he, he was this very, um, I mean, he's, let's not talk about him as if he's, he's dead or anything and he's still very active in the gaming world, mm. but you know, he's this very nice man. And uh, so, so, yeah, so I just sort of just this offhand comment about how every year he would promote himself and eventually, you know, awarding himself the title of colonel, which I guess maybe for the last, because I wrote this in like 2002. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, it seems like maybe for the last 12 years, he has probably been looking for this woman. You know? <laughs> so, so I figured out my old login credentials and stuff like that. And I, I updated the, uh, the everything to write up about him and corrected oh, it. And, yeah. Yeah, Power yeah, of, he a, has. of a wiki like system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the, that was just really weird, long story, but yeah, you, you manage you managed to set the record straight. So well, that's good. Yeah. I'm glad we got the facts out there then. <laughs> All right. Good. Yes. Yeah. I enjoyed that. And, and you know, you, I've noticed you've got a prolific amount of essays as well I've been enjoying on your site. What's the URL for anyone who might want to read that or some of the others? Oh, you know, I don't know because that was like an old website that um, uh, I, eventually – I think it was like I started on GeoCities and then uh, – you know, it was back in the day when I didn't really know how to sort of do like relative – URL paths and how sure. to sort of link up things properly. So I just kind of ended up dumping it on my well, my main site, you know, yrad.com. There might be a link to E2 or everything too, but there's this a lot of there's a lot of broken links and all of that and stuff like that because I just kind of dumped it in there and never really got around to sort of properly linking it up and stuff like that. But if you have show notes, you can maybe link it correctly or something. Yeah, but, for sure. I also was yeah. pleasantly surprised to learn you were an early Commodore 64 programmer when we talked last time. So Yo, yeah, that'll yeah, get you well, some I mean, credibility oh, on my audience. Yeah, I mean, basic language, basically. So. Sure. You know, you're in a way, I would say you're rather a renaissance man. And I was also recently surprised to find out your, I guess, graduate work, your thesis was all around urban legends. And that's what we're going to discuss in some part today. How did you get involved yeah, yeah. in that or interested in that? Um, you know, uh, David Letterman, really. I just saw a, uh, yeah, one long, long time ago, this being the early 80s, uh, Letterman, you know, he said, oh, I'm going to have on a guest. An author wrote a book called The Vanishing Hitchhiker. And, and I was almost ready to turn the TV off because I just thought it was about, you know, the, the death of hitchhiking, like no one hitchhikes anymore and it's just going to be some hobo or something like that. But it turned out to be about a guy who's sort of, you know, a, a folklorist who sort of documents urban legends, which um, probably most of our readers are probably really familiar with urban legends. Snopes.com co- sure. covers them in excruciating detail, but basically, so you know, friend of a friend story. So the, the uh, you know, the vanishing hitchhiker about, I think that was about, you know, people who sort of pick up this hitchhiker on the road and then eventually they turn and the hitchhiker is not in the car and they arrive at a, uh, you know, a road stop and talk about this spooky thing. And then the, you know, the waitress there is like, that was my son, you, uh-huh. know, you know, killed in an auto accident. Woo-hoo-hoo. So a lot of them can be quite spooky, but others 
I mean, there's the urban legend for almost anything out sure. there. And consequently, there are some data, big data, data mining urban legends. Absolutely. That I, I, yeah. I would say even one of the more famous of the urban legends is the one we can start out with, the baby boom blackout. Okay, yeah, yeah, the baby boom blackout. So this uh, this sort of goes back to, um, I believe it was called the great sort of New York blackout, mm-hmm. ni- 1965. Of which Canada was also affected. Yeah, yeah, a lot of sort of the, the northeast because that, you know, sort of our, our, our power grid is um, really connected, especially in sort of northeast. Something goes down in Montreal takes out, you know, it takes out all of New York State, that kind of thing. Yeah, it was 1965, as the, the name sort of implies, the idea is that during um, blackouts or other kind of disasters where people sort of are housebound and have no electricity, that, you know, people, you know, kind of couples, you know, they get busy and then, you know, an inordinate amount of people, you know, getting busy leads, you know, nine months later leads to sort of little mini baby booms. Mm. So that, yeah, so that sort of story started in uh, nine months after the, the 1965 blackout hospital. New York, I think it's the New York Times. They sort of had, yeah, yeah it might've been like a, a, a series of articles about basically just sort of talking about, oh, there's this boom and babies and, and, you know, definitely goes back to the, uh, the blackout. But then probably about five years later, people sort of, you know, they took a look at the actual data and sort of discovered, oh, you know, talking to, you know, nurses and hospitals and going, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's crazy, you know, that, that, that sort of thing. So it's kind sure. of a, what you call it, you know, kind of confirmation bias. Yeah. Where you, you're primed now to sort of expect craziness in the emergency ward during full moons and you're, you're primed to sort of expect an inordinate amount of births, you know, nine months after some disaster or something like that. So it just sort of seems like there are, you know, more crazy people or, or more births. But when you actually look at the hard data, it sort of it is, is not true. Same thing with, remember, her, was it Hurricane Sandy in uh, 2012? Again, amateur, you know, demographers were all kind of, again, predicting, oh, there's going to be this huge baby boom. And then I guess a couple hospitals in New Jersey, nine months later, they are actually reported, you know, an uptick in babies, you know, being being born, which again, they attributed to Sandy, post-Sandy sort of baby boom. But when they sort of looked at the data, they sort of realized, oh, no, you know, this hospital just actually, the hospitals just sort of opened up kind of more beds for, uh, <laughs> for you know, for, for, you know, for expectant mothers. So, you know, they were right, just yeah. able to you know, they just had more capacity. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. And so, yeah, it's just sort of one of those sort of classic things where, you know, if you suddenly do have, you know, a natural fluctuation in the number of births, I mean, there's there are natural fluctuations, and then you suddenly have this big uptick, and then people will count back nine months, and sometimes they'll find something, right? They go, oh, yeah, there was that, you know, that blackout, or was that, that storm, or, you know, those sorts of things. But if they don't find anything, then really just attribute to a natural fluctuation. So yeah. it's, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it surprised me when I was looking into this that you never see the opposite. It's never like nine months after 9-11, there was a decline that, you know, a morning country was less amorous. It's only right, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing too, is that, I mean, you could almost sort of spin it so no matter what happens, you know, people are going to, you know, going to get busy. So, sure. uh, you know, after 9-11, I mean, there just wasn't a lot of things to do for about a week after 9-11. So it, it has this kind of like common sense that, you know, okay, you know, well, nothing to do. So more people are going to have sex and stuff like that. But when you, when you really sort of dig down into it, you sort of realize it's like, okay, well, you know, people who are already on birth control are just not going to suddenly go, you know, power's out. Let's, you know, let's throw the condoms out the window. Because or, these pills you won't know, work anymore. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, so and it's like it's like however much I try to tell my girlfriend that you know condoms are more effective when the television is on, it, it, it's <laughs> it's actually not true. You know, so so and then and then okay, so you know, but there are definitely going to be people who are like may have sex that night who would not have had sex that night because there's just nothing else to do. But, you know, but then and how many extra, you know, how many women that one particular night, you know, are actually capable of getting pregnant in that time frame? You know, right. so there's a very small number of women and then, a, you know, a very small number of those women are actually going to conceive and then, you know, and then something like, I don't know, like 40% of uh, pregnancies sort of end in uh, miscarriages. You wouldn't really technically actually expect huge numbers of extra babies being born when you when you take all of those sorts of things in total. Yeah, that's a good point. It, even if we all, you know, as some nation or as a species agreed, let's all conceive on one day, it, it still would have that failed pregnancy rates and the variability of gestation would, would make it hard to pinpoint nine months exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there is something, I think that's part of maybe the recipe for a good urban legend is it has to have some sort of intuitively plausible, you know, if you just think about it on the surface, it sounds right. It, I don't know, yeah, in your exactly. work in urban legends, is, is there a recipe like that? Are there kind of a couple of high points you have to hit to have a good one? Well, I mean, a lot, a lot of it, I mean, sometimes it's making you seem like you're in the know, you know, you've got the inside track on something kind of clever. And that's almost sort of the way I then transited into conspiracy theories. Because, you know, again, people who believe in conspiracy theories, you know, they put themselves in sort of the camp of the, uh, like the army of light, you know, mm -hmm. we're out to fight the big evil. So, so a lot, yeah, so a lot of urban legends basically sort of involve, you know, you know, like you have certain sort of inside information. And, 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 and a lot of urban legends are just really fun and they're just fun stories to sort of tell. We are a storytelling culture and, you know, more stories you have, higher your status is in the tribe kind of thing. So one of the things I noticed, and this is maybe more growing up, that that was part of the secret to a good story that was told around the block is someone had some piece of information. There was always a cousin or, you know, someone two towns over that knew something you couldn't verify. And there's yeah, that, exactly. that element of mystery that, that makes it sort of plausible. Yeah. I mean, my, my actual honors thesis was um, I, I sort of noticed a lot of like I, I, I sort of tackled the like the horrific urban legends. And um, I, I noticed a lot of the victims tended always to be sort of young, young women. Like it never the victim was never like a, uh, you know, like a sort of jock male or it was always sort of like, you know, the most vulnerable person in society. Kind yeah, of like, like, like a, yeah, exactly. And, and I thought to myself, OK, well, maybe that because, you know, Part of urban legends are meant to sort of maybe transmit cautionary tales, like, mm -hmm. you know, don't go smooching with your lover near prisons for insane criminals, you know, and that, <laughs> right. that sort of stuff. Or, or you know, fast food maybe is not healthy for you, could contain rats, you know. So I thought to myself, maybe more more horrific the urban legend is that that increases the believability. So as you increase the horrificness, mm. does that increase the believability? So I sort of gave different same urban legend, but sort of altered the horrificness to different uh, uh, subjects. You know, first year psychology students, and but basically, but I found I found sort of no correlation that that uh, you know more horrific the urban legend was, it did not actually sort of correlate with more believability. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Although one thing, it also did sort of give me a good insight into how, as you, the experimenter, you can, you can very subtly manipulate the outcome because, 
you know, I started talking to my thesis advisor. And, uh, you know, so it was sort of like in the urban legend, it was like, to me, the most horrific one was the woman dies. Right. And then the next one was she had to have a sort of very painful bone marrow transplant. And then, you know, or then she had to um, go on antibiotics for a week or just go on some calcium vitamins for a couple of days. So that's how, in my mind, I rank ordered it. And then my professor's like, well, that's your assumption, but how do you know that's the true level of horrificness? So I had to then do a second kind of survey to, you know, to get subjects to rate the actual horrificness. And what, what I started to find is a lot of people were, were ranking a painful bone marrow surgery as more horrific than dying. Like a lot of people would prefer, yeah, a lot of people prefer to die. And when their answers did not meet my expectations, I found myself arguing with them. <laughs> Real, like, really? You would rather, are you telling me you would rather die? You know? Uh-huh. Well, now that you met, you know, so it, it's just very interesting how these things are not in any kind of a, you know, method or something like that, and and but these things can sort of wildly influence possibly experiments. So, which is why again we need replication. Absolutely. Well, another good yeah. one that that has some replication uh, that we we're going to talk about is subliminal advertising. Much like the blackout, it's one of those that seems ubiquitous in culture. Everyone kind of knows that this is an idea, and I don't know if everyone's as skeptical about it as you and I will be. Yeah, a lot of people have probably heard of it, and some people might even probably still believe it. There's a notion that uh, a, a movie theater during the movie sort of inserted, like, drink Coke, eat popcorn, like, single frames into mm-hmm. the movie. And then, um, so, you know, people weren't able to sort of see the single frame, but then, at, at, you know, during intermission, which... We don't have any more, so the, this is maybe sort of slightly dating when this quote-unquote experiment was run. You know, during intermission, then they, like that was apparently this drove up popcorn sales and and concession stand sales. It was actually sort of started. What was his name? His name was uh, James Vickery, mm-hmm. and uh, he he claimed he ran the experiment in. 1957, and uh, people back then were even actually kind of dubious, and um, so they asked him like, "Well, can you?" rerun the experiment? You know, can you share us the actual method? And uh, he, was, he was sort of very, very kind of cagey about his methodology and his actual data and other, just wanting kind of people to take his word for it. And eventually he was, uh, later on, he had to sort of confess that, you know, he just, he just made it all up, you know. <laughs> and, and I think people might have tried to sort of uh, repeat it, but they were never able to sort of uh, kind of get a repetition. So, um, and that that largely killed the whole subliminal advertising thing until about 1973. Uh, a sort of a journalism professor uh, or communications professor named Wilson Brian Key, he came out with a book, A Subliminal Seduction. People are probably, are probably familiar with some of these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in that, he sort of claimed that, um, well, he claimed a lot, a lot of amazingly crazy stuff. So he, he claimed that um, whiskey ads in the, you know, the ice cubes and whiskey ads, they put like skulls in the whiskey ads or, you know, offer ads of Ritz crackers. They imprint the word sex on mm-hmm. Ritz crackers. And, and this apparently drives sales or, you know, or desire to fulfill death wishes or sort of a desire to, I, I don't know why you would ever want to associate 
crackers with sex, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, too many crumbs. Yeah. But what, one of his kind of crazier ideas was that um, Playboy magazine kind of wanted to sort of titillate kind of like the, the, the homosexuality in all men. And so so a lot of their their models were actually not sort of naked women, but were actually naked men, just sort of cleverly. This is like Playboy. They, they didn't sort of show anything other than sort of topless women, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes like, you know, their cover ads, you know, that would not be actually a woman on their on their sort of their, their cover page. It would be like a man in a wig and uh, and sort of you know, to lead us, you know, sort of confuse us and make us, you know, kind of get turned on by like, you know, a man or something. But yeah, it had many, many sort of crazy ideas. But I mean, you know, kind of based a lot in sort of pop psychology type ideas. But he did know controlled trials, like, you know, sort of sit people down and go, yeah, see anything in these ice cubes? Um, ice? You know, like, he didn't do anything right. like that. He just kind of would just himself or him and some grad students would just, like, pour over pictures and he would think he sees, oh, I see sex in, uh, you know, these crackers or I see uh, skulls in these, these ice cubes. And I think it's his, 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 mas- his masterwork. Um, it was called the clam plate orgy and other subliminals uh, the media use uh, to manipulate your behavior, which he, which he sort of claimed, I think it was a Denny's placemat. Um, they had kind of a artistic depiction of a clam plate special. And, and in that you could see like there's a human orgy, a human orgy that also involved up to one donkey. This was his claim. So <laughs> I hope we can put the explicit tag on this. Side. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll be uh, proud to say this will be my first explicit tag. So let's get good, right into good. it. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, Brian, Wilson, Brian Key, he actually made his way to up, to up here to Canada for, sort of for a brief time, sort of taught journalism at University of Western Ontario. He, he, he was like a friend of Marshall McLuhan. So, I mean, that sort of helped him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marshall McLuhan was sort of a big, you know, this, he was like sort of the, you know, the the, the god of mass communication. Um, what was his famous line? You know, the medium is the message. And um, so, um, yeah, I think sort of his friendship with Marshall McLuhan sort of helped him just not get trounced out of mm-hmm. academia for having all these bizarre ideas. But Yeah, I haven't you know. seen that clam one, but uh, I've seen at least a couple of the ice cube ones. It's funny, much like a lot of weird hoax type things, if you look at it, cropped and tilted it just the right way there's at least one that does look very sexually suggestive but then when you see it zoomed out and at its proper angle it's it's like seeing animals in the clouds at some point yeah i mean we know this today is pareidolia and um you know basically sort of like if you're told to look for something or listen for something you will you know you will most likely kind of find it actually a um professor in uh toronto just sort of won an, an Nobel. Nobel Prize for his work on on pareidolia, like seeing you know Jesus Christ and toast or something like that. And oh, but, I wasn't uh, familiar with that. What was his work exactly? Uh, I, I forget the exact title, but um, yeah, just 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 quite recently he was sort of awarded an Nobel Prize, basically just for like seeing Jesus on toast ah, or something like it. that. You know, pe- pareidolia. Yeah. Yeah, think, it seems like we either see Jesus or sex. There's not a lot of I don't see the state of California anywhere on on any. Ice cubes no. or toast or whatever. No, exactly, yeah. But I think the, mo- the most damage he came close to doing, he's actually dead now. He, I think he died in 
1998 sort of um, surgery complications or something like that. But um, Judas Priest. All right. Yeah, it was in the 80s. There were a couple kids, you know, depressed, addicted to drugs and alcohol, broken families, that sort of stuff. And they were like listening to uh, a Judas Priest album and then formed the Suicide Pack and they took shotguns and, and, uh, they were like 18, 19 years old. And the first one, you know, put the barrel under his face and killed himself. And the second guy put the barrel under his face and pulled the trigger. And he, he didn't actually die. He blew away most of his face. Uh, but, but he lived, or at least I think he, he lived. He, he eventually did die of sort of complications. But he lived for about, about 10 years or so. And uh, so his parents sort of sued Judas Priest, sort of saying that, you know, there were these backmasking tracks in this one song they were listening to. He was saying, you know, do it, do it. Do it as like, you know, kill yourself or uh-huh. something. So, yeah, so, so this Wilson Brian Key guy, you know, he sort of testified, you know, to, at this trial that, yeah, you know, subliminal messages, you know, can have all these effects. And luckily the judge was kind of like, so you got any scientific evidence? I mean, other than your opinion? Uh, no. So, yeah, so the judge eventually... I think he, the judge is like he, he ruled Judas Priest was not responsible, but he did kind of rule that, well, you know, there are subliminal messages in the music, but there's no evidence that it can actually hurt anybody. So they, they did sort of throw the, uh, throw, throw the case out of court or, or, or award or, you know, rule in, in Judas Priest's favor. Mm-hmm. So did Key have any, outside of his book, did he have any actual, like, empirical data that proved this out or was it all just sort of examples no I, I not one single reference i mean i remember reading this in the 80s and was just amazed at how I, you know like, where are his controls you know yeah. it's just yeah like he was talking about how like you know even my grad students who have been you know primed you know, about subliminal messaging, even, you know, they found themselves being influenced by these subliminal messages. And I'm like, yeah, because they want to keep on being grad students working for you, you know, you know, those sorts of things. Like it just, yeah. I remember being taught, not in great detail, but an introductory to psychology class I had as an undergrad, that it was taken for granted this was a thing. It all seems to stem from, I guess, mainly these two guys just sort of captured the minds of people. Oh, for sure. I mean, because, I mean, it has there's a certain plausibility to it, you know, sure. and a certain lure to it. I mean, especially the idea, like, you know, you can go to sleep at night listening to, like, you know, your algebra tape or something and wake up in the morning and be able to sort of pass your algebra test or something like that. And Yeah, there's sort of a wishfulness. We would all like those things to be true. I, I found one study I was looking at where they had flashed different words. I guess they were positive, neutral, and negative. And this study ended up saying like, well, we found that some of the participants, some of the time, were guessing that what they saw was negative. And <laughs> that was the closest thing to a confirmation I could find, but it was so many, that it was just too many degrees of freedom for my taste. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think this, it's just, there's, there's just really no, no data there to sort of indicate. And I even think, too, it's sort of like... Um, what would Brian Wilson key? Like he would even like involve, you know, hypnotism. Like, okay, so I've hypnotized the subjects and then shown them covers of Playboy magazine. And it's like, now you're adding in a whole other level of pseudoscience, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how those get layered very quickly. Well, the third I know we're going to get into, it, and one of my personal favorites, is the also ubiquitous beer and diapers urban legend. Which yeah. I'm not clear on the actual origin of this, but I feel like it's one that it, most people are familiar with. 
Okay, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the, the classic legend basically goes, these days that's mutated to Walmart. Yeah, um, which everyone gonna, seems to say yeah. Walmart. Yeah, Walmart. So the idea is that, you know, because maybe because it's like, you know, Walmart, you know, they're so crafty, Walmart. But um, yeah, that, the idea goes that, that Walmart, you know, they sort of data mined all their sales data and they discovered that, you know, young males or even any male will go to, you know, to Walmart, you know, to pick up diapers for the kid and then will then buy a six pack of beer. So there's this connection between males, especially at night, buying diapers for the kids and then treating themselves with a six-pack of beer. And then the story goes, Walmart then started to put diapers and beer right next to each other, which then, uh, you know, drove sales to sort of all new levels. And, you know, it, it has that kind of like, yeah, it plays into sort of our biases of, you know, you know, male fathers, you know, kind of, oh, you know, the wife sort of sends them out, you know, to go pick up the diapers and they're kind of like, oh, you know, very reluctant to do this. And this is, you know, a bit of a emasculating job. And then they get there and then they're like, I've, you know, I've done such a good job. I'm, you know, I've bought these diapers and I'm going to reward myself with a, you know, with a case of beer or something like that. So, yeah, so that is the urban legend as it exists today. And I, I heard, I first heard that, I think in the late 1990s but by what? Woman coworker, and I think she was involved in sort of you know data analysis and stuff like that, and so it was kind of something I guess that sort of passed around like like marketers and data mining types. And when when, when you you've heard this obviously? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, so often I can't even place exactly when, but I would say sometime in the '90s is when I first encountered it. It's intuitively plausible, it and it also has this other feature I really like in a way in that. It has great explanatory power for what data mining is because that's the type of insight a data miner would love to find because it's actionable. A business can go ahead and you know move the diapers and the beer near to one another and revenue can go up. It's a simple thing everyone can understand without talking about the complexities of how data mining is executed. It's, it's believable right, that, yeah. that, that you could find this. It just yeah, exactly. unfortunately doesn't happen to be the case in this particular situation. I mean, there are cases where it's like, you know, you... You know, you don't put peanut butter on one side of the grocery store and then jam on the other side of the grocery store because, I mean, people will not then buy them or they'll go to some other grocery store where mm -hmm. they, they put the two things you want together kind of thing. So, I mean, there are definitely these kinds of purchases that sort of reinforce each other and you try not to make them uh, very difficult. There's, there's kind of a whole debate about like like milk in grocery stores, you know, that right. milk's always at the back. And there's sort of one side that sort of says, you know, they because that's a very popular item. So they put milk at the back. So it kind of forces you to walk through the whole grocery store. And then, you know, you'll buy other things till you get to the milk. And then, and then you, you know, you'll go cash out. So why don't they, you know, that's why they don't put milk at the front of the grocery store. When you actually sort of really delve into sort of, you know, how does shipping milk work is they never want milk to ever leave cold storage. Mm -hmm. For every, you know, like minute a milk is out, of cold storage warming up, that reduces its shelf life and really kind of severely. So the reason milk is at the back is because that's where you can build kind of cold storage facilities in the back and you can just bring the cold truck in the back and they, they call it the cold chain. You cannot ever break the cold chain. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason why it's at the back. But a lot of grocery stores actually still even put milk at the front of the grocery store, but that's really why it's at the back. It does, of course, have the, the added effect that, uh, yeah, sure, as you walk through the grocery store, you have to fill up your basket. You might start filling your basket with other stuff. That is a happy byproduct. But for the most part, it's just a way of keeping milk 
cold and having longer shelf life. I guess sort of coming back to the uh, beer and diapers, or as people in the UK call them, they call them nappies. Oh, yeah, I've been when, reading that as well. <laughs> yeah, when you sort of reach a store, you'll see a lot of times like diapers, brackets, nappies. <laughs> but, uh, I wonder if diapers means something else in the UK. It might mean like sweaters or something like that. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I hope somebody tweets that at me because I was at one point working with a you know company. We had some people in, in London, and one of the people there said something about her cubby which sounded really awkward in context. Uh, so yeah. I asked for a little bit of an explanation. She said, well, you know, the part in the back of your car where you put groceries and whatnot. And, okay, well, what do you call it? Well, I call it the trunk, to which she laughed hysterically saying, you mean like an elephant? <laughs> yeah. But the, um, the, uh, as in a lot of urban legends, it's sometimes that, you know, they have a basis in some kind of fact, but have mm-hmm. sort of been wildly you know, mutated, but uh, this 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 one does have a basis in fact that there was a um, there's a company called Teradata, and they were mm-hmm. contracted by a, a um, drugstore chain, very not a huge drugstore chain, Os- Os- Osco Drugstore. Yeah, I know. Osco. And um, okay, oh okay, maybe it's not familiar to me, but um, we're just starting to get what was it Rexall? Do you have Rexalls there? I don't know Rexalls, no. Okay, well, Walgreens or oh, always like. Yeah. My girlfriend loves Walgreens. They've got some sort of mascara there or something you can't get in Canada. But um, yeah. anyway, so um, this uh, this chain of drugstores. So so they they wanted to kind of find these sorts of associations, and their their idea was honestly to sort of find these associations and then you know make the whole you know drugstore just this uh, you know as efficient as possible for the consumer and you know so things that they want to buy together they don't have to traipse across the store and stuff mm-hmm. like that so what what they what they found was that it was between between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. that when they were looking at sort of you know they call baskets you know what cash register tape what is on that cash register tape for each you know sale between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. they found um, I guess sort of uh, you know, uh, statistically significant combination of beer, beer and diaper purchases, mm-hmm. but only between a very limited number of hours. And I believe it didn't. It didn't really depend on the day. It was all you know every every day of the week. But they didn't know the sex of the the person buying, whether it was like men right. or women. But they never actually even even did anything with that actual data. Like they didn't sort of go, oh, beer and diapers. You know, so let's between five and seven p.m. Let's put them together. So the whole um, you know. The store was able to sort of, you know, drive, increase sales, putting these things together. That that is sort of a, a later addition, but yeah. So there was there was sort of a, a correlation, but no one was able to figure out the sex, and no one ever really attributed any kind of explanation as to why there was this correlation. But yeah, it's it's almost a, a strange one. In in the you have to wonder if this makes a, a challenge. I've seen, you know, in, in my own career and in the work of other data scientists, is sometimes you're brought in. There's a lot of money on the line to find something like this, and it. You feel bad coming back and say, well, we didn't really find anything. Here's our invoice. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. In, in a lot of cases, you, I, I see people kind of on fishing expeditions, and 5 to 7 p.m. is an awfully specific time range. Also, the time people get off work and go shopping in, in a lot of areas. So I, I don't know how to take it in context. I mean, I obviously don't have yeah. their data to, to verify anything, but it seems kind of spurious to me. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, what do they, what do they call it? P, P-value surfing, where mm-hmm. you just yeah. start with this yeah big, big data set and then look for statistically significant correlations. And then, and I think, I think you commented on this too, but you, like, you'll see a lot of times, like, 
an insurance company wants to make a, get some free publicity newspaper. So they'll crunch their data and they'll be like, people who are born under you know the horoscope sign of Tauruses are the worst drivers, and you know Libras are the best dri- safest drivers. And and you go, okay, well you know. I mean, if you're going to sort of make that kind of comparison, I mean, there, there has to be a worst and there has to be uh, a safest. But I don't think what they do is they don't sort of go, okay, we're going to divide our randomly, we're going to randomly divide our data in half, and then we're going to see if there's any significant correlation between, you know, the horoscope sun sign and safety. And then oh, suddenly, okay, so we, oh, Tauruses are the worst drivers. And now with our other data, you know, our, the other half of our data set, now we're going to, is that predictive of? And then do they find the same correlation in, in the other data set? And then if they do, then they can go, oh, okay, well, you know, that, that, that lends credence to the, yeah. sort of the hypothesis. Yeah. But they, I don't think they ever really tend to do that. Yeah, I don't see a lot of that. Or even more so extending it and saying, okay, we, we've cross-validated and now we have this belief that it's, what, did you say Tauruses are the worst drivers? Yeah. If like that's Tauruses. true, then we ought to say over the next six months, we're going to see this many accidents from Tauruses and this many from Libras or whatever the other signs are. I don't, I don't know them, but it should have some predictive power. And I never hear yes. studies that way. Like, oh yeah, we moved the beer and, and we saw this much increased revenue. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other problem too. Or again, like, like, like the Hurricane Sandy thing, right? You know, it's like, oh, you know, people are like, there's going to be a baby boom. And then, you know, very few people then like nine minutes later actually go and look and, you know, so you do simple Google sort of goes, oh yeah, no, didn't happen. But, but, but then of course, you know, like people who are really committed to the, uh, to the idea will just go, well, Tauruses so warned have just improved their driving. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's uh, almost like ev- absence of evidence for the conspiracy is evidence of cover up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There is no, um, people can always rationalize any outcome that contradicts their, you know, their hypothesis, right? Yeah. I, I actually hope to do some other episodes in the future about this, these grocery store type problems because when, when I look at it, I, I tend to think Occam's razor is the most ex- explanatory. Your great example about why milk is in the back has a very mm. intuitive explanation to me. But it's such a complicated space. You know, moving the beer to be near the diapers probably means you moved it away from, you know, the the heavy stuff. So the guy who might have bought a more expensive bottle of some fancy tequila Mm. or something is not going to see the tequila. It's Uh, an incredibly complicated problem, I guess, to think of in a global way. And and ethically, do you really want to encourage drinking and parenting? Like, is that something... (laughs) That's a good point as well, yeah. Yeah. We keep keep the diapers by the crack pipes. (laughs) Um, Is that real? The most ethical thing you can be doing? We make money. (laughs) There's kind of a part... It it, it harkens back to what you were saying earlier about urban legends being, you know, you're in the know. That gives you an added advantage. And I see some of that in the data world where... Someone will say, well, we crunched 30 petabytes of data and we ran this analysis and we came out with this result. And I see sometimes a reluctance of people to say, well, prove that to me a little more because I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know about those 30 petabytes of data or whatever else. I guess I'm wondering if, if you find that that can spawn a new breed of urban legends, if that's part of the, the recipe that, that makes a data miner capable of generating new ones. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I... I... I'm not aware of too many, uh, I mean, da- real data mining urban legends other than other than that one. But yeah, I mean, that that's one that I kind of uh, heard and just kind of believed. You know, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah it makes sense. Yeah, I've seen it in textbooks. So for what that's worth, it's it's a pretty prolific claim. Yeah. 
But I mean, what, 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 I mean, one thing I have found is that sort of in the absence of good information, people will, like, like, why is this thing happening? If they do not have sort of a good explanation as to why a certain thing is happening, people have this bizarre need to uh, in, interpret it as like, it's happening to make me a victim, you know, uh -huh. that, that, yeah. that people, yeah, yeah, people have something, this weird need to sort of make themselves a, a victim, even, even though it, it, it kind of has this weird negative outcome. Yeah, it's, I've never thought of it exactly that way, but I think that's quite astute. I, I hear a lot of times people will say stuff like, oh, well, they're tracking me because they want to sell me more things. And the flip side of that argument is, they want to put things in front of you that you actually like more often, which sounds like a service. So I'm always yeah, a little yeah. torn on that, you know. I mean, I'm all in favor yeah. of privacy, but it's hard to, to frame something correctly sometimes, I think. Yeah, exactly. I remember I had a friend who worked for an advertising company. And uh, my, my friend does not have a lot of needs in life. Like he's, he likes to read the newspaper. Uh, he, you know, he lives in his, you know, one bedroom basement apartment and that's what all he needs in life. And so and he, he found himself working too much at this advertising company and then sort of went to his boss and said, you know, can you, can you cut my hours? Like I don't, I, I don't need all this money. I just want to work like instead of 40 hours, I want to work like 30 hours. Mm -hmm. And they're like, Oh, okay. You know? And, uh, but then his other coworkers, you know, who are married and have mortgages and stuff like that, they saw, you know, they, they could not conceive of somebody wanting their hours cut. Mm -hmm. So the, the only way, the, their only conclusion was that my friend was earning so much more money than them that he was able to sort of cut his hours and still, you know, maintain this, you know, mm -hmm. lavish lifestyle of a house and two cars and three kids and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. so so that their their interpretation was not that this guy just doesn't need a lot of money and is maybe just a little lazy, their interpretation was, we're being screwed over here. Yeah, I think that is very thematic of a lot of these. A lot of the urban legends I was interested in as a kid, you know, these and others, even if we went into more of like the, you know, the hook is in the handle of the door kinds of stuff, Yeah, it, it's hard to really, or at least I think it was hard to ever track these down before the internet uh, was around. And I thought mm -hmm. that just the ubiquity of these affordable devices we carry in our pockets to fact check things would have tempered a lot of the urban legends because I ought to be able to Google for that and at least find a local newspaper. It's not like back in the day where you'd say, oh, you're just – the search engines don't know about it or something. It, it, what's right. your sense of that? Has, has the internet made urban legends go on the decline or are we just in a new era of different types of them? Well, I mean, I definitely think so. Something like Snopes.com, I think that is, um, it's really easy these days to sort of yeah. nip those kinds of urban legends in the bud. Uh, obviously, things that are sort of very political, like, you know, Obama's the first president and not salute soldiers properly. The other, you, know, all the, you know, you see all these things that, a lot of those things I think are, you know, or George Bush is the first president to do something terrible, that you, you, you can pass people those, you know, links to those Snopes things, and they're still... They're still not going to back down from that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Things that are very sort of political, but oh, I mean, around the fringes, I think I think you know, Snopes.com sort of does a lot to sort of kill those sorts of things off. And obviously, you know, things like Facebook and stuff, I'll immediately see people passing on links to Snopes and and sort of you know, killing a lot of these sorts of things in, in, in the bud. And people people generally almost all all seem to have collectively agreed that you know snopes is the final authority on uh, on these urban legends i think it's a great resource and i've lost many an evening just uh, wandering through articles yeah yeah so do you think that um sometimes i see these things passed around 
you know, there's always a game of telephone. The the players change, the names change. It's Walmart, it's Target, it's whomever. <laughs> but every once in a while, I'll see precise figures creep in. Like, I, I think it was, um, who was the guy we were talking about earlier who did, who who falsely claimed he did the experiments in the theater? Uh, Vickery, I think. Um, right, right. His claims had percentages attached to them. It was like Coke sales rose 18% and popcorn rose 58%. Uh, right. Did, did you at all, and in, in when you were looking at Urban Legends, did, look at the presence of numbers, whether they hurt, helped, or were irrelevant? Well, I mean, I have read, and, and be skeptical of this, but I have read that when, when people lie, th- their stories tend to be really specific. A lot of weird specificity in their, in their stories that uh, sort of are, are lies uh, under the belief that it makes it sound more true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I've definitely seen that as a feature, definitely. Actually, you know, one of the urban legends that, kind of an urban legend that I actually... I actually predicted was, um, you know, I lived in Korea, and so I sort of follow Korean news and stuff like that. And one of the Korean newspapers had, you know, has sort of like, you know, learn English kind of feature. Mm-hmm. So they will take news articles and different articles and then sort of run the English and then run the Korean translation. So for fun, they took uh, they took something from The Onion about Kim Jong-un being the sexiest man alive. And, and they took that from The Onion and then sort of did a Korean translation and used that as sort of a light and fun way of sort of teaching English, especially teaching teaching, um, you know, American senses of humor, which is very radically different from Korean senses of humor. And the Korean, they, they make it quite clear that this is a work of parody. Americans love parody and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I was looking at this, I'm going, you know, other news services are going to pick up on this and they're not going to realize that this is parody because they're not going to be able to read the Korean, but they're going to, it's you know, kind of in their feed and they're going to see a Korean newspaper reporting this and they're just going to pick that up and throw that into their, into their news feed without realizing that it's parody. And sure enough, it just sort of went mad and among like Asian online newspapers and stuff like that. You know, Kim Jong-un's been declared sexiest man alive by this American newspaper, The Onion, and as if it was you know, completely true. And, and I, 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 was, I was not at all surprised when, you know, a few days after this, this thing running in, I think it was the, the Korea Times or something like that, that it just hit all of these uh, sort of Asian newspapers as if it was a, a true and factual story. <laughs> How funny. Yeah, I think there's a great study for someone to do here. Maybe a good grad students project of how bad information starts from one source spreads and whether or not you know a post to Snopes can cut off a little tributary of spread or whatnot uh, I'd love to see some work on that yeah well, I mean you know the best piece of advice I always give is like if you're searching on the article and all that you're finding is basically the same article just right. being repeated by all sorts of different sources slightly rewritten then you know be be very 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 sort of skeptical yeah as I do with all my guests, I like to ask for the uh, benevolent and the self-serving reference. Two references uh, to things can be anything, a book, a website, whatever you like, that you think the listeners might enjoy. Oh, let's see. Um, well, I mean, I guess I definitely have to offer Snopes.com as a uh, uh, something you'd enjoy, your your ultimate time sink, I suppose. Mm-hmm, yeah. The only thing I find with Snopes is uh, I, I like to sort of like kind of do a con- – Control A, Control C on web pages, and then just sort of paste it into a Word doc, and then create a PDF, and then throw it on my Kindle. So mm-hmm. I, I don't spend a lot of time sort of at the computer, kind of like reading blogs and things like that. Uh, but but Snopes, Snopes makes it really difficult to sort of copy their content and paste it into Word and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of turn off some JavaScript mm-hmm. or something yeah. like that. But yeah, but they they say you know look we 
we spend a lot of time researching these stories and our only revenue are these are you know banner ads so we just can't have our material sort of floating around out there I suppose that's fair. And your self-serving reference, uh, what can people find something that benefits you as directly as possible? Oh, I guess, I guess, you know, my conspiracy skeptic, uh, yrad.com forward slash CS for conspiracy skeptic. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being my guest. Uh, I hope everyone listeners enjoy and will, if they're not already, check out the conspiracy skeptic as well. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, Kyle. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks for listening to the Data Skeptic Podcast. Show notes and more information are available at www.dataskeptic.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at Dataskeptic. If you enjoyed the program, please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. A review is the greatest way to show your support.